All right. So this is the last week of our series, Lessons That We Learned uh, on the Playground. And I, I've loved this because we've talked about so many different things that they talk about all the time in the classes down the hall. But it, it seems like we think we've grown out of them, that we don't need to talk about them here. Things like honesty and kindness and, and generosity and, and fairness. Somehow we think we, we figured all of that out. But if you look around, I think you'll see we need these lessons now more than we ever have before. And as much as we learn on the playground, we knew we couldn't stop there. These lessons that we learned, uh, we had to grow up with them. We, we may have wanted to go to uh, Neverland and, and be a, a kid all the time, right, like Peter Pan. But eventually we knew we had to grow up. But what does that mean? What does it mean to grow up? Yeah, a group of five to eight-year-old children were asked that question, and these were their answers. David, who's aged seven, said, you know you've grown up when your clothes don't fit anymore. Angie, age six, said she believes she became a grown-up, uh, and that meant to ride a bike and with no training reels and not have anyone walk beside you. Amanda, age five, says when you can cross the street all by yourself and run your own bath water. Lisa, age seven, says it's when you're 30. <laughs> Sherry, age six, when you stop growing old, when you have to go to work, and when you're a mom. And Eric, age five, says, it's when you have wrinkles on your face and you look in the mirror and say, oh no. <laughs> There's probably a, a measure of truth in all of those answers, but God has his own idea of what it means to grow up too. He says it means to become perfect like him. Matthew 5 says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this morning we're going to do a quiz, and I don't want you to think too hard about your answers. I just want you to raise your hand uh, with whatever comes to mind first. So question number one, how many of you believe that you are perfect? Sue? Good. <laughs> question number two, how many of you believe it's possible for someone who is still living to be perfect? Okay. Question number three. How many of you believe that you are imperfect? Good. That was the test question to make sure everybody had to raise their hand at some point. It's a binary answer. You know, most of us didn't raise our hands to say that we are perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, is because we think perfection means sinlessness. It means that uh, we never make mistakes. And we all know from Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet we see over and over throughout Scripture, God calls his people to perfection. And he says that's not an unattainable goal either. Genesis 6.9 says Noah, a man who was living, Noah was just a just man, and a perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Philippians 3.15, it says, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. There are some people who are perfect. Noah was one of them. Now, one of these two things is wrong here. Either these people of Scripture, they defied what we know from Romans 3.23 by being sinless, or this biblical concept of perfection doesn't mean that we never fall short. So what is perfection? In Greek, the word translated perfect here in Matthew chapter 5 is teleos, and it shows up you know, many times in the New Testament. It's almost always 
translated as perfect, but there's one passage where teleos isn't translated perfect, and I think that that translation may help us get this through our minds. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, we read these words, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That's that word teleos there, full age. That is those by, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So in other words, to be teleos, to be perfect, is to be mature, to be of full age. How many of you believe you are of full age? <laughs> there we go. In other words, from the playground, right, we have to grow up eventually. We can't stay the same as we've been. We have to become responsible. We have to become reliable, dependable. In short, we have to learn how to behave like adults. We can't become or stay immature. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, 43, that Aaron read for us. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, there's a, a certain kind of behavior that we need to exhibit. Then we will be sons of our Father in heaven. And so when Jesus says that we need to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect, he says we need to grow up, become full age like our Father. You know, in this passage, Jesus doesn't say a thing about being sinless. You know, what Jesus says here in Matthew 5.44 is that perfection or growing up to be like God means what? We must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why would we want to do that? Well, because that's how God behaves. We become mature. We become perfect like our Father, and this is what our Father does. He loves his enemies. He hates or he loves those who abuse him. God is the grown-up in the situation, and that's the behavior he wants us to model. If we only love those who are nice to us, What's the point in that? Everyone does that. Even kids, the immature, know how to do that. It takes an adult to rise above, and God modeled this type of love for us, loving our enemies. Colossians 1, 21, And you who were once alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You know, the Father, he loved us when we were his enemies. And now he's telling us that we need to learn to love those who are our enemies as well. It's part of uh, how we become a grown-up son or daughter of God. The Apostle John, he ex expands on this when he writes uh, in 1 John 4, 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God and him. If we are going to grow up like our father, then we have to love 
others, but that's just one way that we grow up to be like our Father in heaven. In Luke uh, 6.35, we read that God is merciful. And so Jesus said, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. 1 John 1.5, we're told that God is light. And so Jesus taught, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven in Matthew 5.16. We know that God is holy. Leviticus 11.44, God declares, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, Paul introduces this idea of being a, a mature or adult Christian means we have to give others something to imitate. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You know, to be like God, to be perfect, we need to be examples because we follow a perfect example. You know, uh, there's a story about a couple who had uh, irregular church attendance, I guess you could call it. And they, asked, um, they were asked by the preacher if they would host a, a visiting minister for lunch. And the couple didn't really know how to get out of it. And so uh, they invited the family over to their home and have this special meal uh, with the guest preacher, and they had a little boy who was sitting there at the table, and he was so excited because his family, they never cook like this, but they, they pulled out all the stops for this meal, um, and he was so excited. When they all sat down to eat, their little boy, he was uh, accustomed to diving right in when he saw good food, and he imme immediately reached out for the uh, mashed potatoes on the table, but because the minister was present there, his mother you know, gently stopped his hand and, and bowed her head, uh, so that he would follow her example. And the boy, he caught on quickly. And the example was, when the minister's present, we pray before we eat. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> so maybe we should clarify this. We need to be careful of the example we set. Of course, we are thankful to God every time uh, we have any blessing. We're always thankful to God. It's not just when someone uh, is watching. We can think of all sorts of examples we set. We're always giving something for people to imitate. But is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that we are always setting an example for someone? We know our actions have power, and we have to realize that power when we are taking those actions. So for the families here, what kind of example are you setting for the relationship between a husband and a wife? What about the relationship for older siblings and their younger brothers or sisters? Whether you believe it or not, whoever you are, you are setting an example for someone. You're, you're setting an example that someone is going to try to follow. The older members here, they're setting an example for the younger members here. And so many facets of our lives, we are setting examples for people to follow, whether that's good or bad and whether we realize it or not. But there comes a point in our lives where we have to ask ourselves a very important question. Whose example am I going to follow? Will it be a brother or a sister or a parent or a a grandparent or a close friend. And there's so many different examples, different choices we could choose for us to follow. How do we know which one is the best? We know that we are going to set a good example when we recognize who the perfect example is. Jesus Christ was perfect in love. He was perfect in compassion, perfect in forgiveness, perfect in every way. And when we imitate him, 
we give a worthwhile example to others. So let's be clear. Our actions, they don't only affect us personally. And that's how a child thinks. They think that everything revolves around them. They're only focused on themselves and the immediate circumstances. But when we grow up, we have to realize that our actions impact other people as well. We're always giving something for someone to imitate. And we can leave an example that will lead others to Christ or lead others to hell. When we mature, we realize that is what is really at stake here, that our actions matter. A few chapters earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read in verse 12, we labor working with our own hands, being reviled we bless, being persecuted we endure, being defamed we entreat. We have made or have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. You know, Paul wanted the Corinthians, he wants us to imitate him because he was their father figure. And the same word mimic or imitate there, it's used over and over throughout scripture. Philippians 4, 9, he advises Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen to me, put it into practice. That's that word mimic or imitate there. And the God of peace will be with you. Peter in 1 Peter 5.3 tells the elders that their job must be to lead, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples, something to imitate to the flock. And in case that idea was lost on the rest of the church, God tells them in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Philippians 3, 17 says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So our objective is to get to the point of maturity, to grow up enough that we give other people a good example to imitate that can point to our Father in heaven. And we need to keep stepping up here in Greenfield to be those examples for people. We need examples to help in our youth group. We need uh, examples to teach our Bible classes. We need examples who will take on the work of deacons and their family in this congregation. We need people who will take on that kind of work, not just because we have projects that need to be done, not just because we see needs in places where um, it'd be nice if we had someone to fill them, but because we need examples for the rest of the body here that can show what our Father looks like. You know, Paul had told Timothy to do this very thing when he wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy 2.2, 2, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So, if you're a teacher, if you're a, a person um, who's working in the church, you should find someone you can mentor, someone you can train to do what you do, because it's not enough just to get things done. We are to be examples for others. But this training, it's more than just how to do the job. It's more than just facts and figures. And we're teaching things uh, like who are Peter, James, and John, or where's Damascus on a map, or what did the tabernacle look like? Those are all important. We need to know those things. They're valuable and they're worthwhile. But that's not what Paul stresses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What does he say? He says, imitate me. 
I work with my hands. One of the things Paul wanted the Corinthians to imitate was his work ethic to the Thess- uh, church in Thessalonica. He said in 2 Thessalonians 3, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we are not disorderly among you, nor did we anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. In verse 12 here in 1 Corinthians 4, when we were cursed, we bless. When we were persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Paul wanted the Corinthians to mimic his response to unfair and cruel people. When he was cursed, he blessed. When he was persecuted, he endured it. When he slandered, uh, he answered kindly. These aren't theological ideas that he wants people to imitate. This isn't just doctrine that he's talking about uh, us imitating. We look at that word pattern very often to talk about you know, how we should structure the worship in the church and how we should uh, go and, and think about God and all these different things that are the pattern that uh, the, these early Christians left for the church. But it's not just doctrine that we're supposed to follow and imitate. It is their lifestyle. When people are around us, we should follow their lifestyle and we should emulate that lifestyle so others can emulate it from us. We need to grow up to live a lifestyle that other people can imitate. And when we do that by looking to the perfect example of Christ, we give a good example to follow. The example of Christ, he shows us, first, we should be an example of service. You know, a person who has truly grown up is going to have this attitude of service in their lives. You know, I don't care how old Uh, a person might become, if they don't learn to be servants, they are not mature. All true adults have this quality about them. If you have this one trait, you're going to develop all the attitudes that you need otherwise. The attitude of love, of mercy, of holiness, a, a desire to spread the light that God has given us. All those things will come once we understand what service means. And it's this service quality that we strive to teach younger people, that the example that we want to set. We have other words for it when uh, kids are young, right? We want to teach them responsibility or, or chores, or your job is to, to rake or wash or sweep. But in reality, whatever you may call it, jobs or chores or responsibilities, it's all about teaching younger people to be good servants because being a good servant is what being an adult in the family is all about. You know, a teacher gave her class of second graders a, a lesson on magnets and what they did and how they acted and all these different things. And the next day, she had a written test that included this question. My full name has six letters. The first one is M. I pick up things. What am I? And from the lesson before, you imagine the answer would have been a magnet. But when the test papers was turned in, she was astonished to find 50% of the class put what? Not magnet. Mother. Why did they all give this answer? Well, because when they look at someone who is mature, when they look at someone who is a full age, perfect, like their father is perfect, they saw mom, and mom picked up. Kids don't understand servanthood. That's why when we're kids, we're given chores. You know, likewise, you know, Christians, we don't always understand servanthood, and that's why Jesus modeled this for us. For example, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom 
for many, in Mark 10, 45. Or in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, but as important as those words were, Jesus knew his example was an even better teacher. That's why on the night that he was betrayed, you know, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room and before he introduced what we know as the Lord's Supper, what did he do? He returned with a bowl and a, a towel around his waist, and he washed some feet. You know, to grow up, we need to shift from the childhood idea of chores and responsibilities and, and jobs to the grown-up ideal of taking responsibilities as servants of God joyfully. That's what Jesus exemplified. He willingly served when he didn't have to. That is perfection. Now, secondly, Jesus also modeled for us that we need to be willing to suffer, not just serve other people and, and suffer in dignity, but suffer physically and mentally. You know, suffering isn't a sign of imperfection. That's what society tells us, right? When we suffer, we've done something wrong. Enduring suffering is something, though, that the Bible tells us over and over we must imitate if we're going to be like Christ. Paul understood this when he said uh, he was beaten, he was cursed, he was slandered there uh, in 1 Corinthians, right? Peter says in 1 Peter 2.18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. It because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth who when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed it's on the board now as peter says it's really no achievement if we are suffering for some wrongdoing. That's not suffering. That's punishment. That's getting what we earn for ourselves. We're simply reaping the fruit of our actions. But if we do good in our lives, if we are serving others like Christ imitated for us and we suffer for it, then we're following the example of Christ. And that is the repeated theme throughout the book of Acts. And we read accounts of the first century Christians who were constantly being punished for doing what was right. Whether it was preaching and teaching Jesus or, or healing the sick or driving out demons, they were continually facing persecution for a righteous life. And if we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, then we ought to expect some form of suffering. And I'm grateful that we don't live in a time or place where that uh, suffering is always going to come in the form of physical persecution or physical abuse for our faith. But it seems like in that freedom, we become too timid to suffer persecution when it is required. You know, why aren't more of us knocking on the doors of our neighbors, trying to tell them about Jesus? Why aren't more of us shaking a hand and inviting them to come and worship with us? It's not because we're going to be beaten in the streets. It's not going to happen. It's not because someone's going to throw us in prison. Very unlikely going to happen. 
It's because we're afraid we might be mocked, we might be ridiculed, our jobs might be in jeopardy. If we're truly going to follow in the footsteps of our Lord, though, we must be willing to suffer for his cause. It may not be the same kind of suffering that the first century church endured, but it's going to be suffering. And that's the example that Christ set for us, and it's the example that we should set for others to imitate as well. And finally, the example that Christ set for us, he set us an example of trust in God. You know, Jesus trusted his father. He was obedient to the point of death, Philippians 2 says. And just a few verses uh, above this talk about perfection in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak, all, or, uh, cloak also. And at, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You know, of all the examples that, that Jesus gave here, I believe that probably the one that hit home the most for the people listening was this going the extra mile. Right? We know from, from history that the, the Jews despised the most in that day these Roman soldiers who could come into their cities and, and just drive them crazy. And a, a Roman soldier could legally, at any time, demand that a Jewish person carry his load for a mile. And Jesus said, don't just carry it for one mile, go two. When someone comes and knocks on your door and says that they want to unjustly use you, say okay, and keep going, keep asking for more. And that requires absolute trust in God because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in any of the world's understanding. It makes us trust God. Peter tells us that Jesus didn't strike back, but he continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. We must continue living righteously despite the suffering we face without retaliating because it is God's position to avenge. It's God's place to hand down the appropriate judgment on those who mistreat us. Our God, he can and he will carry us through those difficult times if we trust him to. If we only move forward with confidence, that is the example that Christ set for us, and it's the example that we have to set for others. You know, we can be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. doesn't mean that we're sinless. doesn't mean that we never make mistakes, but it is a challenging feat that we have on our plate. It does mean we have to serve others when it does not make sense. It does mean we have to suffer even when it would be so much easier just to back away. And it does mean we have to trust God when it doesn't make sense to. It's been done before, and Jesus wouldn't command us to do it again if it wasn't possible. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. It just means that we're maturing and growing up into who God wants us to be. And when we spend enough of our time trying to grow up to be like our father, after a while we start to look like him. And other people can look to us and say, I can imitate that because they are imitating Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you're ready to commit your life to that goal, now is the time to come to the front of the room as we stand. As